All right, so almost every year, uh, well, there's a Gallup poll that goes out, and almost one year ago today, as a matter of fact, it was on January 31st of 2022, there was a Gallup poll that was released about the satisfaction of life and the satisfaction with the direction of our country. Well, 85% of Americans said, in, according to the poll, 85% of Americans are happy and satisfied with their personal life. That, it's an amazing number. As a matter of fact, it's the second highest number uh, recorded. Um, 90% uh, was the highest number. So this was just 5% of the all-time high. What is interesting that while personal satisfaction and people's lives, you know, them saying that they're personally satisfied about their own life, What was interesting is that satisfaction with the direction of our nation was at an extreme low. It was at 17%. The same people who said 85, my life, 85% happiness with it. Uh, The same people said, uh, you know, satisfied with the direction of the country at 17%. Creating a satisfaction gap of a whopping 68%, which is the second highest recorded in history or in our country. And, um, and the only one that was greater than that, the only gap that was higher than that of personal satisfaction and satisfaction with the direction of our country was the year that preceded it, when it was 71%. The reason that I bring that up is that we're all aware that our country is not headed in the greatest of directions. We, we talk, we have conversations all the time, right? I mean, you do with your acquaintances and you may do it around the water cooler at work. You may do it wherever you are, but we have these conversations about, man, what is going on in our country? We turn the news on and we see places getting burned and people getting beaten and we see people being mistreated and we just wonder like what in the world is going on in our world. And then if that's not bad enough, we, we jump on social media and then we see how people behave and interact on social media. And we think again to ourselves, what in the world is going on in our country? Well, this has led to 17% satisfaction rate in the direction of the country that we live in. And so unfortunately, we spend more time talking about the problems in our country than we do talking about solutions. And of course, if you spend too much time talking with people, you'll discover real fast that we are inundated with people who have a problem for every solution. Amen. And so I want to read you a section of scripture this morning, and before we jump into it, um, I want to read you a section before we get into the main focus of our message, and it's from Romans chapter 1. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read the last verses first, and then I'm going to go back to the reason for the rest of these verses. And so as I'm reading, I want you to imagine with me. Now, remember, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome in the first century. I want you to see if there's any comparisons that we could possibly make as we read through this, okay? So Romans chapter 1, we're going to start verse 24, and then we'll jump back in a few minutes to Romans 1.16. So in 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, uh, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, 
they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Sound familiar at all? Now, before you get mad at me and send me emails, this is the Apostle Paul, and I'm pretty sure you can send him one, but I don't think he's going to get it, okay? I don't think he actually had an email account. And this is the part where I say my heart needs a surgeon. Because while we look into this, and here's what we tend to do as Christians, we read passages like this and go, oh yeah, I know some people like that. When the reality is, is we all know some people like that, mainly the one that we looked at in the mirror this morning when we were getting ready to come to church. I mean, we can pick out things in here, then we go, this is wrong and people shouldn't do this. And it's really easy for us to look at the sins of other people and call those out. But Paul really kind of just covered all the bases right here. And he pointed out sins that every one of us have ownership in. And it's difficult. I get it. And, and particularly for you young people, you're, you're growing up in a world that's so rapidly changing and we all are living in the same world, but it, it's so hard because you're growing up in a world where some things were ex are, are now culturally accepted that weren't culturally accepted years ago, so it doesn't feel so foreign to you, some of the things in which he talked about in here. As a matter of fact, um, it particularly, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one particular thing because all of these are equally destructive for our lives, but I want to clarify a point here that when we read this, sometimes we go, oh, well, is he saying that's okay? In verse 27, when he says men committing shameless acts with men, he's, he's not saying that that's a shameless thing. What he is saying is that they have lost all shame in doing it and think it's okay, which is why when we get down to the bottom half of this whole thing, when he talks about all these sins, and again, that's not to separate that sin from other sins. The sin of homosexuality is just as bad as the sin of foolishness and faithlessness and disobedience to parents and all of these things that we all have participated in. We are all guilty as charged. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't dare stand on any of this and point at other people and go, I am better than you. And so the point of all this is, is at the end of the, the section there, he says that though they knew that God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only practice them, but they give approval to them. And that's the world we live in now. That our world doesn't just practice them. They celebrate the things that God says, hey, you should not do this. And the reason that God says these things is not because he's a mean God. The reason he says not to do these things is not because he's just sitting up there trying to figure out how he can make humans live the most boring life possible. It's so that we don't destroy our life and so that we can live a life in such a way that God is glorified in how we live. We're going to get to some more of these details here in a minute, but the culture that Paul wrote this letter to was similar to the culture that we find ourselves in. Very similar. And the culture that we find ourselves in is a very loud one. And here's what I mean by that. You can't talk about these things. If, if I just took these passages and I copied and pasted them and put them on social media, do you know the kickback that I would get? And we live in a world today that if you have an opinion, if you have a view, if you have a belief, and you speak that freely, people who disagree with you will shout you down. They will put you into a corner and shame you for believing such things, and then the whole world just seems to jump in with them. It seems as though it's no longer possible in the world that we live in to have differing opinions on things and still be civil towards one another. We can't have a conversation about differences of opinions and particularly about differences in beliefs. Take your stand for your beliefs and again, get shamed by the culture for believing and preaching hate. And that's coming. It's already happening. If you preach against things that just come straight out of scripture, there's pastors being put in jail for preaching these passages. And how it gets done is people, again, they get on social media 
and they shame you for talking about things like this. If you take a stand, if you, if you loving, did you know that you can lovingly go to someone and go, hey, you know, I, I know you and you say that you're a follower of Jesus and I, I just need to point something out to you that right here, this is what the Bible says. And then people will shame you on social media for trying to tell them something and help them. It's amazing. It's, um, I remember years ago, you guys may remember this, and I know this is not a very popular name in South Georgia, but there was a guy named Tim Tebow who played for the University of Florida, go Gators. And Tim Tebow, when he was young, um, or when he was young, when he was early part of his NFL career, um, he, he just would have these, he would look terrible for like three and a half quarters. And then the last half of the fourth quarter, he would just catch fire and he'd lead his team back. And they, they, they made this run, amazing run to the playoffs. And then he even won a playoff game. And, and I remember that uh, at the end of all these games, he would take a knee and he would pray and he would give thanks to Jesus. And I remember, if you guys remember this very well, it became a very polarizing deal because the media would jump on there and say, Tim Tebow needs to keep his faith to himself. He needs to just shut up and play football. And so that's, the, that's, that's kind of how our culture is. And much like Tebow, all who call on the name of Jesus now are being told to leave our faith in the church. Just leave your faith in the church. If you want to preach Jesus or you want to enjoy Jesus or talk about Jesus, just leave that in the church. Don't bring that out here in the world that we live in. And judging by the decline in the, of the church in America, it appears that we have been shamed enough to leave him here. How many conversations do we have about Jesus outside of this area and outside of this time slot? But I want us to take a look at the, what the Apostle Paul wrote in the preceding verses, because this is really, really important. So just a question, and this is rhetorical again, don't answer this out loud, but I mean, I need you to answer this honestly in your heart of hearts. Are you ashamed to talk about Jesus in public? Are you ashamed to talk about Jesus with people that you're acquainted to? Do you feel a sense of shame whenever you feel like you need to take a stand for your faith? It's a real question, okay? Um, before we get into this uh, passage real quick, I want us to talk about that word for just a second, ashamed. Here's the definition, if you care to know, I think, and if it's out of order, it's out of order. Ashamed, embarrassed or guilty because of one's actions, characteristics, or associations. Embarrassed or guilty because of one's actions, characteristics, or associations. Let me tell you, there's been so many times in my life that I have been ashamed and I'm sure shame is a feeling that we all have experienced before. There are probably things in your life that you can think of right now, experiences that you had, decisions you made, words that you said, and you can think about those hard enough. If you're like me, you can think about those hard enough and, and your face almost begins to turn red with the shame that you feel. Ashamed because of my actions. I remember in high school that me and my friends, we were making fun of a, of a, of a person and we were having a conversation about her and just kind of making fun of her. And I remember that when the words finished coming out of my mouth, I turned around and there she was. Never felt so ashamed in my life. Not, not realizing that as I'm talking about her, thinking this is kind of a fun thing, the damage. And I didn't know she was there. But then I turned around and there she is. And, and I felt so shameful because I just destroyed a young girl who probably thought a lot of the opinions of the boys that were in that circle. Shame because of my characteristics. I grew up poor. I mean, we didn't just grow up poor. You know, some of y'all have heard we grew up poor. We couldn't afford the OR, you know, in the end. I remember one day in middle school that I had, I had to stay after 
school for something for just a few minutes. And the interesting thing about my mom, my mom never had a car. She never got a driver's license. When she passed last year, she still never had a driver's license and never drove. And so when I was growing up, um, we, we mowed and jowed it everywhere we were going. We, we uh, put one foot in front of the other. That's how we got where we would go. And this day, I had to stay after for school. And I remember it was a day like today. I mean, it just rained all day long. But I had to stay after. So I stayed after. And then when it was done, I walked home in the rain. And I remember uh, as I'm walking home, it was about a three-mile walk from school to my house. And I remember how shamed, ashamed I felt in the moment of, man, why is this kid, I'm the only one, by the way, figure that out, that's go figure, right? I'm the only one walking in the rain. I mean, it's a downpour, kind of like it was earlier. And I remember walking home, and I remember just how ashamed I felt in that moment of being that guy, like my mom didn't have enough money to buy a car, or didn't drive a car, or didn't have a driver's license. And I just remember feeling uh, so ashamed that day as I was walking home, and then as I'm walking home in a downpour, if that wasn't bad enough, there was a guy in a big four-wheel drive truck who, coming down the road, there was a huge puddle on the side of the road. And man, when he hit me, it was like a wave. I, I think I saw a surfer go by as the wave hit me. And so I went from kind of just really wet to soaking, like dripping wet. And the shame that I felt that day uh, was pretty amazing. And then uh, ashamed of my associations. I've had some friends in my lifetime that I've uh, been acquaintances with that um, just, you know, mean people did some bad things and, and then I'm guilty by association. So we've all felt that before. What about your past? You feel shame or there are things in your past that you feel shame over? Or how about currently? Is there anything in your life currently that you feel shame over? Do you have moments in your life that, again, as you think about them, they come flooding back? Um, well, this morning, what I thought we would do is I'm going to get a microphone and we're going to pass it around and let everybody... I'm kidding. Um, we don't like to talk about the things that bring us shame. And the reason that I won't pass a microphone around is you wouldn't talk about it either. It's funny that, you know, we, um, we, we, we think that being transparent and open, and the Bible even teaches that in James. He says that we confess our sins to one another, that we would find healing. But nobody in the church is going to stand up and confess their sins to one another. Why? Because we feel shame. And we just, we don't want anybody to know that our life is not all together. And so we hide it and we bury it. That's the thing about shame, isn't it? We don't want to talk about the things that we're ashamed of. We don't want to be seen as being affiliated with the things that we're ashamed of. So let me share one last story about myself that I am ashamed of. When I was young in my faith, when I started kind of dating Dee Dee and going to church, um, I, I was so worried. I, I, I was ashamed to talk about my faith because I was worried about how I was going to make other people feel and what other people were going to think of me. Uh, I'm ashamed of the fact that I, I used to be ashamed of my faith. I, um, I was so worried what people would think of me that I would, and think that I was just being weird for Jesus, that you're some kind of Jesus freak, and you know, don't bring that stuff over here, um, that I forgot about in those moments because of my shame, 
I forgot about the fact that there are, there's another person on the other side of that who actually needs the grace of Jesus Christ in their life. Um, and mine too. And now, again, don't raise your hand on this one, but do you ever feel yourself being ashamed of your faith? And remember, one of the ways that we know that we're ashamed of something is we don't want to talk about it. Romans 1.16, so we're dropping back. This is where we left off last week. Romans 1.16, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for I am not, what's the word? Of what? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also the Greek, which basically means to everyone. So why would Paul even be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? It's a good question. For one thing, the gospel was identified with a poor Jewish carpenter by the name of Jesus. That's the gospel is the good news. The good news is that God knew that we needed salvation and that we couldn't earn our own salvation because we, in our, on our best day, are incapable of living a completely righteous and holy life. And so Jesus had to come and die on a cross and pay for our sin debt. And so the reason Paul would have to even make the statement that he is not ashamed of the gospel is because there was shame associated with it because, again, the gospel was identified with the poor Jewish carpenter who was crucified. The Romans had no special appreciation for the Jews, and crucifixion was the lowest form of execution that could be given to a criminal. So why put your faith in a Jew who was crucified? Rome was a proud city, um, and the gospel came from Jerusalem, not from Rome. The gospel came from Jerusalem, the capital city of one of the little nations that the Roman Empire had already conquered. The Christians in that day were not among the elite of society. They were just common people, uh, usually on the lower end of the, uh, the wealth spectrum, and sometimes even slaves. Rome had known many great philosophers and had known uh, and created so many great philosophies, so why pay attention about a fable of a Jew who arose from the dead. Christians looked on each other as brothers and sisters, all in one, united under the umbrella of the name of Jesus Christ, which went against the uh, grain of Roman pride and went against the grain of Roman dignity to think, to think of all um, that had been done in the name of Jesus, to think highly of a Jewish tent maker by the name of Paul, going to Rome and preaching such a message, it's almost humorous. It would have been in that day. So Paul has to say at the beginning of this letter to the church at Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He had confidence in his message, and he gives us some reasons that explain why he was not ashamed. Um, Romans 16, in the last half, he says, it's the power of God to salvation. So why be ashamed of power? Power is the one thing that Rome boasts in. So Romans ought to get this, and the church at Rome would fully understand this. Greece might have its philosophy, but Rome had its power. They were the most powerful nation on the planet at the time in the writing of this letter from the Apostle Paul. And um, so were they not conquerors? The fear of Rome hovered over the, over the entire empire like a cloud. Were not the Roman legions stationed all over the known world, but with all of her military power, Rome was still weak 
Why was Rome weak? The philosopher Seneca, Seneca called the, Rome, uh, the city of Rome, he said it was a cesspool of iniquity. That's what Rome was. It was a cesspool of iniquity. Uh, there was another writer in that day. His name was Juvenal. Uh, his, he called Rome a filthy sewer into which the dregs of the empire flood. See, with all of its power, it still had its problems. And so Paul writes to this place and he writes to this church and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. No wonder Paul was not ashamed. He was taking to sinful Rome the one message that could actually cure what was wrong with the people there. I'm convinced that the reason that I was ashamed of the gospel in my early days was because uh, in my early pursuit of Christ, I was trying to live two lives. I was. I, I mean, I was trying to I was trying to be in with my friends still. I was still trying to have a great relationship with them and live like they lived and not change my life a whole lot. But then on Sundays, I was going to church and I was trying to hear the message and I was trying to go, okay, like I want to be a follower of Jesus, but I also still want to follow my friends and do the things that they do. And, and because of that, I was ashamed. So I would go to church and feel shame for the life that I'd lived during the week. And then during the week, I'd go out and I'd hang out with my friends all the while still feeling some of the shame of the decisions that we were all making. And so with all of that came shame. And shame, again, when I was in the church because of my associations and actions, and, and I knew that God knew. A shame when I was trying to fit in with everyone because... I had not yet experienced the transformative power of the gospel in my life where I fully believed that the words on this page would actually lead to something better. I was still questioning. Then one day in July of 1998, I surrendered my life to the gospel. I surrendered my life to Jesus. I gave up my ability uh, or my attempt, if you will, of trying to live two different lives, to be one way in the church and be one way out of the church. I was convinced that only one of those lifestyles had the ability or had the power, as Paul would say, to transform my life, to change the way that um, I experienced the world, and more importantly, change the way my relationship with God uh, would interact. So I separated myself from my old life. I, um, I, I eventually kind of cut ties uh, with some of those acquaintances that I had, and I accepted the gift of new life that comes with knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And because of the power of the gospel, my life has been changed. It has not been the same, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't go back. And I had some, you could say, good times back then, but, man, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. So I stand firmly now and confidently on this side of the gospel. Where do you stand? Which side of the gospel do you stand on? Can I make one more confession about shame? There are times that I am ashamed of things that I see taking place in the church. I don't mean just Osceola Baptist Church. I mean the Big C Church. There are times that I'm ashamed of the things that I see from prominent pastors who fall morally. And it gets plastered on the front of newspapers. And then people begin to associate you. Like, aren't you a pastor? Don't you go to a church? Aren't you? And, and because they see the hypocrisy of what we preach and then what we practice and how separate they are. It, it, I feel ashamed sometimes of churches that make a mockery of the gospel by preaching hate. I'm ashamed, of the gospel. I'm ashamed of the churches sometimes because um, they make a mockery of the gospel by watering it down so much that, that we don't call people to a holy and righteous life.
And it makes me feel ashamed when those who don't know Jesus and his beautiful bride, the church, see the church behaving in a way that the world often does. And for the record, I'm not standing on stage as someone who is perfect. I'm far from that. Matter of fact, I had a conversation. We went on staff retreat. Was that two weeks ago now? Whatever, however long ago that was. And on our staff retreat, we were having a planning session. And there was another church in town who asked if they could come in and sit in on our planning session. They had some conversations they wanted to have. They were getting ready to go through a church renovation, and they wanted to know, Cindy, some of your fantastic ideas and the property committee's fantastic ideas about how do we navigate church renovation without um, losing everyone. And they asked if they could come and sit in, and they did. And then we started having conversations, and then, and then we uh, also had a conversation. They were talking about um, the need that they felt that they had to begin to transform their worship ministry. And of course, as a church, we've walked through that. And I know that it's not always still the easiest thing for many people to um, sing the songs that we sing or to have a like or a dislike for the songs that we sing. And I know that that's difficult and it was, it was not easy, but we made it through it as a church and we just loved one another enough to care that, you know what, uh, I don't care what it takes to get everybody out here worshiping. Let's make sure that everybody can worship to, uh, you know, music that is about Jesus. And that's the thing is it's not about the, the notes or the instruments, about the words and the gospel and the heart behind it that we try to get behind. So as we're having that conversation, this pastor says to me, well, who gets to get on stage? And I said, well, what do you mean? Because I told him, I said, we, you know, we used to have like two, maybe three people on stage. And I said, now there'll be 10 to 14 people on stage on any given Sunday. And he says, well, who gets to get on stage? And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, do you just let anybody get up on stage? And I said, well, I mean, I, I don't know what you mean by anybody, but I mean, we're not going to let the crack dealer get up on stage. Because, you know, people that are destroying lives, we don't want to, but, but if you mean, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, what, what about people who just struggle with stuff? Do you let them get up on stage? I said, listen, the way I believe it is, our, one of our first and most important steps in developing a relationship with Jesus, Jesus looked at the disciples in the very first century and said, follow me. Now, he did say, follow me. He, he would say in certain instances, go and send no more, but he said, follow me. He didn't say, get perfect and then follow me. He said, follow me. And I just told that pastor, I said, well, one of the things that I believe firmly is that one of the things that we can do to help people grow in their faith journey is to give them something to do in the church. Let them serve Jesus. And I think as we serve, our hearts begin to change because we realize the position that we're in and we go, okay, I would never want to be up here and cause somebody out there to stumble into something. But I'm certainly, I, I am certainly very aware, and this is what I told the pastor, I'm certainly very aware that... Um, there is no such thing as a perfect person. And so I said, we, we lovingly allow people to serve in positions and we get that life is messy and we get that we're all sinners. And I said, but, I said, but if we're only going to allow perfect people on this stage, then every Sunday we're all going to show up and stand at an empty stage, stare and look at an empty stage. And that's what I told that pastor. And I don't think he agreed with it and that's okay. But I just think that it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And I think that that's why Jesus came to earth. I think that's what this whole gospel message is about. And so sometimes it does. It makes me feel ashamed of, of how we treat people. It makes me ashamed of how we talk about people. But I do think that there's a calling that Paul is issuing to us. I want to read you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 16, and we'll pick back up. So here's 1 Peter. 
1, 13 through 16. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And he's talking about before you were saved, before I was saved. And then watch this. He says, but in verse 15, as he who called you is what? You also be what? Holiness is a word that we have just kicked out of the church. Holiness is something that none of us are pursuing anymore at a rate that the the early church used to. And I think that part of the reason for that is, is we're, number one, we're still struggling with, are we ashamed of the gospel or not? Can we be who God called us to be out in the world without feeling shame? And that might be because maybe for us, maybe for us, it's because we're still not so sure if this really produces what we think it's going to produce. But, but as he called you as holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I think that we're just trying to be sometimes just Christian enough to fit in with the world and fit in and the church at the same time. And holy means separate. It means set apart. It means different. And I, I'm just concerned that sometimes that the church and the world don't look a whole lot different from one another. And we do it sometimes in the, um, sometimes we do it and we say that, well, I'm just exercising my Christian liberty. But that's not what holiness is. Holiness is me going, I'm not trying to people to see me. I'm just trying to be a mirror so people can see Jesus. So where are we at in the pursuit of holiness? And one of the things that I would love, I would love for our church, if we're known for nothing else, if we would just be known for a, a church that's pursuing holiness, I think. God would be well pleased. There was another reason why Paul was not ashamed, the outcome of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. That word salvation carries a tremendous amount of meaning in Paul's day. The basic meaning was deliverance, that you were enslaved and that you would be set free, and it was applied uh, to personal and uh, national deliverance. The emperor was looked on as a savior, and as was a physician who uh, healed you of an illness, And the gospel delivers people from that, from the penalty and the power of sin. Salvation is a major theme, obviously, in this letter. Salvation is the great need of the human race. If men and women are to be saved, there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. And it's the name of Jesus. It's the name which every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. God does not ask men to behave in order to be saved. He says to believe. It is faith in Christ that saves the sinner. Eternal life in Christ is one gift that is suitable for all people, no matter what their need may be or what their station in life is. So let me throw this out there. We should never feel shame over. Let me just kind of help you get the gospel lens here. We should never feel shame over something so beautiful as the gospel that says because of Jesus, shame is over. We don't have to feel ashamed anymore. You are accepted. You are loved. You have been sacrificed for, regardless of what you've done in your past, that we are all on equal playing ground. We are all equal in the eyes of God. We are all sinners saved by grace. And we should never feel shame over something so beautiful as the gospel that says that because of Jesus, shame is over. So, when we think about the gospel and its impact on our life, 
we should boldly proclaim it out there because we know that there are people out there that need it just like the people that need it in here. Matter of fact, Paul would say it this way later in Romans. He would say, there is therefore now no, con no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 17, and I know we're getting long. I'll wrap up quick. Verse 17. He says, for in the righteousness, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what Paul is saying is the wrath of God is poured out. I mean, in the, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God, do we? I mean, we don't even talk about it in the church much. How many worship songs have you ever sang about the wrath of God? I mean, we sing songs like, He leadeth me, but we don't sing songs called, He whippeth me, right? We don't like to talk about the wrath of God. But it's a reality. And Paul would say that um, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, how was it revealed? Well, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for mine and your sins. And so let's look at this real quick. The attitudes of the heart make them suppress or push down. That's what that word means, the truth. Suppression, you know, is not the same as ignorance. Suppress means that uh, the truth is in there, but you kept yourself from acknowledging it. You know, kind of like when you know that eating the whole bucket of ice cream at 10 p.m. is not going to help you lose weight, but you suppress the truth because you know that it's going to taste good. It's kind of like, um, you know, in, in the summer when you get in the pool, if you get in the pool or you go to the beach and you got a beach ball. Have you ever tried to hold like a beach ball under the water? Like it's fighting, right? It's fighting, 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 fighting. And you're just trying to hold it down. And sometimes, you know, you, maybe if you, you try to sit on it, like we play games with the kids, be like, hey, where'd the beach ball go? And I'm sitting on it in the water and then it just pops out from behind me because you can't just hold it down. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying we, people are suppressing the truth. Tim Keller says this. He says what Paul is saying in this passage in particular is that when it comes to the knowledge of God, here's what he says. We know, this is Tim Keller, we know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. Let me say this again. Tim Keller said, quote, we know, but sometimes we don't want to know, or we don't know because we don't want to know. Sometimes we don't know because we just don't want to know. Near the end of World War II, the first town with a concentration camp that the Allied forces liberated was a town called Ordruf, Germany. It was part of the, I'm sure I'm butchering this, how you can help me out here, uh, Buchenwald um, concentration camp of network. See, the Nazis, uh, as, as they felt like they were losing the grip on the war, they began to try to cover up all the evil that they had done. But the Allied soldiers got there before they could do this. And uh, so the Americans, when they showed up, they witnessed hundreds of dead bodies. There's a scene, if you've ever seen the series Band of Brothers, there's a scene at the end when they're walking through the woods and there's this ash that's falling. And you're, they're wondering, or at least I was wondering as I'm watching, is that snow? And then they turn and they walk in a different direction and they, they go out into this open field and there's this concentration camp where the Nazis had been burning bodies trying to cover up what had been done. A few hours later, General Patton arrived and upon his arrival, he promptly vomited at the sight that he was seeing. The next day, 
General Patton made the mayor of Ordruff and his wife come see for themselves what they had known was happening all these years. He ordered the mayor and every able body in town to uh, dig graves for each of the bodies that had been executed or had died as a result of starvation. After they dug the graves, they conducted a funeral for all the deceased people. Patton found out that the, after they had finished this, Patton found out that the mayor and his wife had gone and hung themselves. And when they did this, they left a note. Before their death, they wrote a note, and here's what the note said. It says, we did not know, but we knew. Tim Keller says, we know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. The truth, it's too uncomfortable. That's why reading the Word of God is so hard, but it's so necessary. We know because we don't know because we don't want to know. So, some, so subconsciously, we choose not to know. Verses 19 and 20, I promise I'm going to try and wrap up quickly. There's some really important information that I really want to try to get out. Um, 19 and 20, uh, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. It's important that we carry the gospel out into the world, and we can't feel shame over it. We have to go and proclaim it as a life-saving, life-changing message because the people in the world are without excuse because people will say all the time, well, what about the guy on the desert island who never heard the gospel? Does he go to hell? Yes, he does. Because we are not lost because of, and we are not condemned because of what we did not hear. We are condemned because of the sins that we committed. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how do we deal with this? Because Paul would say that, they, that the God's you know, divine attributes have been clearly seen and perceived since the, um, the creation of the world. And so he says they're without excuse. Everybody's without excuse. Throughout history, philosophers have tried to break this passage down and help us to understand it. And there's a couple of arguments, and I just want to throw these out real quick if you want to write them down. I can email you all of this because I'm going to go through it fast so we can finish. There's the cosmological argument. Um, it's one of the things that we learned, in, um, if Krishan's in here, wherever he's at, he's going to take one day in his Bible college, he's going to take a class called uh, apologetics, and it just means the, the argument for the faith. There's a cosmological argument. This goes all the way back to Aristotle. It is the question of why why there is something rather than nothing. And where did the original something come from? If the world began 14 billion years ago, and there's always debates about how old it is, if, but if the earth began 14 billion years ago with a big bang, where did the materials that caused the big bang come from? You can't keep going back to infinite and regress to nothingness or regress into nothingness. In order for something to exist, and this is kind of the argument, okay? In order for something to exist, there must exist the things necessary for the thing to exist. Let me say that again. In order for something to exist, there must exist the things necessary for the thing to exist. In order for a tree to exist, there must be proper soil, proper culture, proper environment. There must be water. There must be nutrients in the soil. There must be oxygen or uh, carbon dioxide in the air. In order for that tree to exist, there has to exist all the things in order for that tree to exist. And the same is true about the cosmos that we live in. So there's the, uh, eventually something has to come from somewhere. Nothingness can't just explode. Even Richard Dawkins, not Richard Dawson, Family Feud, Richard Dawkins, who's a known atheist who wrote some books, 
One is called The God Delusion. And in the book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins says this, quote, Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology or ultimate origins. Cosmology, he says, cosmology is waiting on its Darwin. And the reason that it's going to wait forever is because they cannot explain what the beginning was. And I just believe in the beginning, God. Then there's also what the, so that's the cosmological argument. Then there's the teleological argument for God. Teleos means purpose. Not only do we have the questions of why there is something, but rather, or rather than nothing, but our creation appears to be very, very finely tuned for a purpose. Scientists say that life on earth depends on multiple factors that are so precise that if they were even off by a hair, life on earth would cease to exist. They call it the Goldilocks principle that things are just right for human life. For example, the makeup of our atmosphere, 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, half a percent of argon, and 0.03% carbon dioxide. These numbers represent the difference between life and death. If some of those levels were even slightly off, for example, if the level of oxygen dropped by 6%, we would all suffocate. If it rose by 4%, the planet would ignite into a large fireball, and we would all die. If the CO2 were just a little higher or lower, then the earth would either become an oven and have, or it would have no atmosphere at all, and we would all die. Or how about this one, the water molecule. This is pretty interesting science fact. The water molecule is the only molecule whose solid form, ice, is less dense than its liquid form, which means that when you get a glass of iced tea and you put ice in it, the ice doesn't sink to the bottom. It does what? It floats. If ice did not float, it would sink to the bottom of the whole ocean and it would eventually freeze from the bottom up and we would all die. Or the distance of the earth from the sun, if it were 2% closer, if we were 2% closer to the sun, the planet would be too hot for water to exist. And do you know what would, all, what would happen? We would all die. And then there's the tilt of the earth, which is set at an ideal 23 and a half degrees, which, is, which we've learned is perfect for temperatures and tides. You've probably never thought about it, but if it was not tilted, temperatures would be extreme. And do you know what would happen? We'd all die. At least the humans, anyway. Last one, we've learned that if Jupiter wasn't the size that it was, and in the orbit that it has, astronomers predict that there would be 10,000 times the number of asteroid strikes here on Earth, and we'd all die. One scientist said that the greatest miracle of all time, without any close second, is the existence of life on our planet. And you say, well, maybe we're just lucky. In a universe as big as our planet was bound to exist somewhere, it just, we just happened to be on it. But scientists say the odds, listen to this, the odds of a planet like the Earth existing are so astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. And here's what they say. It's like tossing a coin every second and having it come up heads for 10 billion years in a row. So yeah, you can speculate that this part of the galaxy was just really, really lucky. But is that the best and easiest explanation that we're going to see? We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. Verses 21 and 23, I'll wrap up. Promise we're done. And here's what he finishes up saying. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Do you ever kind of watch the news sometime and go, what in the world is happening? Did people just lose their brains? This is what it's talking about. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it has the power to set people free from slavery. And we should not be ashamed of the gospel to proclaim it out there. Who cares what people think? I would rather be more concerned about where people are going to spend eternity. And I would rather be more concerned about people's marriages. And I would rather be more concerned about people's family life. And I would rather be concerned about pe- more concerned about people's livelihood than I would about what people think of me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it has the power to set people free from the slavery to the things that destroy their life. And that's what sin does. And if we believe that, then we're going to have to be willing to speak the truth in love. We should never feel shame over something so beautiful as the gospel that teaches us that because of Jesus, our shame is over. 